Lord, I pray that you would bless the reading and the teaching and the hearing of your word today. That, Lord, you would light within our soul a fire that we would have this inner drive, Lord, that we want to know Christ more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in the first six verses of Philippians chapter 3, Paul has been laboring to teach us about the futility of obtaining salvation by the flesh. That's really what he's been getting at. In verse 2, he talks about the evil, the dogs, the evil workers, the false circumcision. He says, beware of them. But on the other hand, we are the true circumcision. They're the false circumcision, and he's referring to the Judaizers. But we're the true circumcision. And then he gives three marks of a true believer, a true circumcised person. And he's talking about circumcision of the heart here. So the three marks is that this person worships in the Spirit of God. He glories in Christ Jesus, and he puts no confidence in the flesh. And then starting in verse 4, and verse 5, and verse 6, he unpacks what it means to put no confidence in the flesh. And what he does is he goes back and gives a little biographical account of his own life. And he rehearses the religious credentials that he had that made him have confidence in his flesh. And so he talks both about the things that he had by birth, that were, he just inherited them from birth. Those are the first four credentials. And then he talks about the decisions that he had personally made and those are the last three credentials. So he mentions, first of all, that he's of the nation of Israel. He was a Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was circumcised the eighth day. He was a Hebrew child of Hebrew parents. So all of those things were his by virtue of the fact that he was born into a particular family, right? He didn't choose to become a Jew. He didn't choose to be of the tribe of Benjamin. He didn't choose to be circumcised on the eighth day. All of that was done for him, but he still lists them as credentials that, in his mind, lift him up and give him this esteem, this religious esteem in the eyes of people. But then he mentions three that he had something to do with. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. So Paul had chosen the strictest sect of Judaism, the Pharisaic sect, who were all about the law, knowing the law, transcribing the law, keeping the law, enforcing the law. And so he chose that particular sect. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. That's how zealous he was to stamp out anything that he thought contradicted the true religion of Judaism. And then, as to the righteousness which is in the law, he said that he was found blameless. Now all of that must have sounded pretty impressive to another fellow Jew of Paul's day. All those credentials. But then Paul says in verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, which is what we just listed, those seven credentials, all of those things that were gain, I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, it's like you have an asset and a liability column on your ledger, and all of those things that he had put his stock in and confidence in, they were the assets in his life. And he said, I, I took those those gains, and I moved them over to the liability column. They weren't gains. They were liabilities because they would cause me to trust in them to be saved. And because I would do that, I would be damned in the end. I would, I would end up in hell because I'm trusting in myself, and I don't have enough 
righteousness to be able to offer to God to be, to be accepted by Him. So th those things can't save. So they're actually not assets, they're liabilities. And I have to transfer them to this other column. Now, if Paul is not going to put confidence in the things he lists here in 4, 5, and 6, what would he put confidence in? If he's going to transfer all those things from the asset to the liability column, what's going to go in the asset column? And he tells us in verses 8 through 11 what that is. In verse 7, he says, I have counted all those things as loss, and here it is, for the sake of Christ. That's the asset, Christ. Verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I hope you see the theme that's coming through in his writing. And then verse 9, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him. So all the way through here, Paul is transferring the focus away from his works, and his religious credentials, and his flesh, and he's saying, no, I've got something infinitely superior to that. What I have now is the person of Jesus Christ. I know him. He speaks about the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He speaks about gaining Christ. He speaks about being found in Christ. He speaks about faith in Christ. And then he reiterates all of this in verse 10 and says that I may know him. That was his heart's passion and desire. So Paul is no longer fixated on keeping the law, doing the Judaistic rituals like circumcision. He no longer cares about his pedigree, his tribe, his nationality. All of that to him is, is rubbish and what he now is engrossed with is the person of Jesus Christ. Knowing him. Gaining him. Being found in him. So Paul had traded everything in for Jesus Christ. And this morning what I'd like you to do is look with me at verses 8 through 11. Because I believe what we have in verse 8 through 11 is an, is an unpacking of Paul's phrase in verse 3. He says... The true believers glory in Christ Jesus. And Paul is explaining for us how he had learned to glory in Christ Jesus in verses 8 through 11. He said in verse 3 that a true believer puts no confidence in the flesh. And so he explains to us in verses 4, 5, and 6 how he had learned how not to put any confidence in the flesh. But now he has learned to glory in the person of Jesus Christ. So you could say that Paul is showing us the worthlessness of the works of the flesh and the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. And that's what this whole passage is about. So as we work our way through it, I want to show you five different aspects of knowing Christ. Five aspects of knowing Christ. Because that is the heart and soul of this passage. He begins with it in verse 8 by talking about the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And he ends with it in verse 10 by saying that my heart passion is that I may know Him, the Lord Jesus. They're like bookends to this section. So the first aspect of knowing Christ is this. Knowing Christ is precious. Precious. Precious, valuable. 
Now, what was Paul's previous judgment as to what was precious? His circumcision was precious to him. His nationality. The fact that he was a Jew was precious. The fact that he was of the tribe of Benjamin was precious. His rank. His knowledge of the law as a Pharisee, that was precious to him. His zeal for what he believed in, that was precious to him. His law keeping was precious to him. But now he says in verse 8 that he has cast all that aside as rubbish. And notice in verse 8. I count all those things but rubbish so that, so that I may gain Christ. The word rubbish is a word that has a range of meaning in Greek. It can be translated as refuse, garbage, manure, or dung. Excrement. So it's not just that it was worthless. It was that it was repulsive. It was repulsive because these are the things that would cause Paul to get trapped in depending on himself rather than looking away from all those things to the beautiful person of Jesus who alone could save him. So when Paul looked at all the things that he once trusted in, he counts it all as a filthy, stinking mess compared to the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. And notice in verse 8, he mentions the surpassing value of knowing Christ. The surpassing value. What he's saying is that nothing in his former life could even come close to the value of knowing Jesus. That's more valuable than any religious deed he had ever done, any ritual he had gone through, any pedigree that he could mention to others. What, what do we call something that is of surpassing value? We call it precious, don't we? If it's of surpassing value, it's precious. Paul is telling us that knowing Jesus Christ is precious. It's a surpassing value. And then notice the word count in verse 7 and counted in verse 8. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. What tense is the word counted? Past tense. I did that in the past. There was a time in my past where I counted all those things as lost. He must be referring back to the, his conversion on the road to Damascus when God opened his eyes and he became a Christian. And at that point, he counted all those things that he once trusted in as lost. But then notice verse 8. More than that, I count all things lost. What tense is that word? Present. 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 How many years have gone by between his conversion and his writing of this letter. You may not know the answer to that. It's about 25 or 30 years. So 25 or 30 years ago, I counted all those religious things as loss, and I still count them as loss today. That's his point. I, I didn't make a hasty decision to give my life to Christ and then regret it later. No, I made a once-for-all decision, and I stand on that decision today, and I still see all those things that I once put so much value in as dung, as loss. Then notice the phrase all things in verse 8. More than that I count all things. In verse 7 he says, the things that were gained to me I counted as loss. And what he means by that is the seven credentials that we've already read in verses 4 through 6. Those are the things that he counted as loss. But he says more than that, even more than those seven credentials I just mentioned, I count everything, all things. And I believe that would even include 
his Christian attainments after he had been converted. Not just his Judaistic ones before conversion, but everything else as well. He's willing to put in the lost column and put only one thing in the gain column, and that's Jesus. So this would probably include things like all the souls that he had won to Christ from his preaching, all the churches that he had planted, all the letters that he had ever written, including all the letters that we have in our Bible, all the sufferings he had endured for Christ, and all the workers that he had trained up, and all the disciples that he had made. He says, all of those things, I put all those things in the lost column compared to the excellency of knowing Jesus. Because nothing that I can ever do, no matter how good, can even... It's like lighting a candle to the sun when you point to Jesus and the, and, and the value of knowing Him is greater than anything else in life. So what here Paul is describing for us is the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration happens when God opens our eyes to see the worth and the value of Jesus Christ. Most people don't see that. If you do, if you truly value the person of Jesus, it's because God has opened up your eyes through the new birth. You've been born again. It doesn't happen apart from the new birth. So when we're born again, Christ becomes precious to us and he becomes our all-satisfying treasure. Just like we were reading in Psalm 63, how he talks about marrow and fatness and how uh, we, his soul was satisfied just as his body was satisfied with food, his soul was satisfied with Christ. So, folks, there is nothing more precious in this life than knowing and walking with and serving and worshiping and communing with Jesus Christ. That is the, the apex. That's the epitome. That's the top. There's nothing above that. That's the ultimate end of everything that we, we are looking for and seeking in this lifetime. Now, if we stick something else at that apex, that's where our troubles begin. That's where everything needs to culminate in our life. So, do you really believe that? That there's nothing more valuable than knowing Christ? Do you really believe that? Do you live like you believe that? That's where the rubber meets the road. Am I, if someone looked at my life, would they say, yeah, he values this more than anything else? And it's obvious from the way he lives. Do you make knowing Christ the highest priority? Things seem to get arranged in our life according to a particular priority, but unless we are intentional about it, our priorities can be mixed up. But according to scripture, this is the highest one. So knowing Christ is precious. That's the first thing Paul tells us. Knowing Christ is also pardoning. Look at verse 9. Because he says, Now that I've come to know Christ Jesus, I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, look back at the end of verse 6. When Paul was unconverted, he was found blameless. When people looked at his life, they found him blameless. But he says, I don't care about that anymore. I want to be found in him. I, I really don't care what people think about me anymore. I want to be found in Christ. And why would Paul be so concerned 
to be found in Christ, he goes on to explain it here. If I'm found in him, I'm not going to have a righteousness of my own derived from the law. That's the kind of righteousness he used to have. There's two kinds of righteousness that Paul could have pointed to. He could have pointed to his own, Paul's righteousness, or he could have pointed to God's righteousness. And he's saying, I don't want a righteousness of my own derived from the law. What would you call a righteousness of your own? Self-righteousness, right? It's, I, I'm the one that has produced it. I have created it. I've come up with it. It's, it's derived. Now, it's, it's a righteousness of my own derived from my law-keeping, Paul is saying. I don't want that kind. That's the kind he used to have. That was a work of the flesh that he had confidence in, but he's discarded that and put it in the lost column and said that's dung compared to Jesus. What I really want is the second part here. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Okay. If he doesn't want his own righteousness, what's the alternative? It's God's righteousness. There's only two kinds in the world. Either you possess a self-righteousness or you possess a divine righteousness. There's only two types. The problem is that a self-righteousness is never be good enough to be acceptable to God because God's standards are perfection. And no, no human being can achieve that kind of perfection. Paul did pretty well. When people looked at his life, they found him blameless. But God knew the truth, that there was still hidden sin in his life. And in Romans 7, he even talks about that. Covetousness was going on in his heart. People couldn't see that, but God did. God read the heart. So Paul said, I will gladly get rid of my own righteousness derived from the law, because I want this other kind. The, the righteousness which comes from God. Romans 3.24 says that we're justified by a gift through grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So this righteousness that comes to us is a gift of God. It's not something that you, you work for. Now, now, Paul had worked to the point of exhaustion trying to come up with a righteousness that he could appear before God with. He was found blameless. He had worked so hard to keep the law. But the righteousness which comes from God does not come on the basis of our performance or our works or our efforts. What is it, what's the basis that it comes to us on? That's right. It comes from God on the basis of faith. The end of verse, verse 9. So God's righteousness is perfect. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ and you can't, perf you can't uh, improve upon his righteousness. He never sinned. There was never any deceit found in his, in his mouth. Uh, God knew him who had knew no sin. So Christ was absolutely perfect. The life that he lived on earth was sinless and it was pristine in its beauty and its perfection. That's the very righteousness that God takes and puts to your account gives it to you when you believe upon his son. We had a great discussion about this at a Bible study just last Friday night. The great exchange that happens. Christ takes our sin, he gives his righteousness, and we trade places. And God now treats us 
as if we were Jesus, and he treats Jesus as if he were us. So because we had sinned, God poured his wrath out upon his son. And because Jesus is perfect, God pours out his love and forgiveness and justification upon us. So I, I, I love this description of, of justification here in verse 9. It's the receiving of God's righteousness on the basis of faith. It gives us a perfect standing before God. So, knowing Christ is pardoning, it removes all sin and it bestows on us a perfect righteousness. Number three, it's also powerful. Look at verse 10. That I may know him. Well, okay, Paul, what will happen when you know him? I'll know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So knowing Christ is powerful. When Paul came to know Christ, he came to also know the power of Christ's resurrection. Now how so? How would he know that? Well, he tells us how in Ephesians chapter 2, all of us, he says, were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God made us alive together with Christ. See, Jesus rose from the dead, and God united us to this risen one, and so that risen power that was in Jesus flows into the dead sinner, making him alive, and he's now born again. He experiences a spiritual resurrection of the soul. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, what's true of Christ? Well, he's been raised up from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of God. He has sat down at the Father's right hand. And that means that everything that's true of Jesus is true of all who are in Jesus. So the power of Christ's resurrection becomes the power working in, in me. That's the power that gave me the ability to be made alive. It's the power of Christ's resurrection. When I was united to Christ, that power gave me life. Does that make sense? Feel free to, ask, to just tell me it doesn't make sense and I'll go back and try to make it more clear. But that's the very beginning of where we experience the power of Christ's resurrection. It's when we were dead in sin and God made us alive. But it's not the only time. Haven't you experienced many times in your Christian life at various points the power of Christ's resurrection working in you? In other words, you sense that there's a power in you that's not just you. That if it was just you, you wouldn't be able to do the thing that you've just done. For example, the power to endure mighty trials that come into your life. Or the power to fight Satan. Or the power to overcome temptations that he hurls at you. Or the power to serve your brothers and sisters. Or the power to witness to lost people. Or the power to love someone that doesn't seem very lovable. Whenever you sense that you have been enabled to do something that in and of yourself you wouldn't ordinarily be able to do. That's the power of Christ's resurrection working in your life. So when you come to know Jesus, you also are, you, you sort of tap into the power of his resurrection and that can become yours when you, when you have need of it. 
by depending upon Him and abiding in Him and trusting in Him, that power can be manifest in your life as well. So that's the third thing that we learn about knowing Christ. It's powerful. It's pardoning. It's precious. Number four, it's painful sometimes. It can be painful to know Christ. Because he mentions in verse 10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. When you come to know Christ, there's also a pain involved. Because the Christian enters into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Jesus suffered, and a disciple is not greater than his Lord. If our master suffered, then it stands to reason his disciples will as well. Jesus' sufferings were the result of persecution, weren't they? People called him Beelzebub, the prince of demons. They tried to discredit him. They said that he was born of fornication. They said that he was a drunkard. They said that he was a glutton. They accused him of being possessed by the devil. They ended up trying to strip him of all of his power with the people by ultimately having him scourged and crucified, get rid of him. And Paul wanted his life to be just like Christ's life. So he says, I want to know him, and I want to know the power of his resurrection working in my life, but I also want to know the fellowship of his sufferings in my life as well. It's not that Paul was a masochist and he liked pain. But he wanted to enter into this deeper fellowship with Christ. And you know when that usually happens is when we're going through painful times. We, we do. We, there, there's a, a new depth of relationship that we experience when we go through suffering. Hmm. Why would Paul want to enter into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings? I thought of a few reasons why he, he may have wanted to do that. Perhaps it was because he would consider it an honor to suffer shame for Christ's name, like the early disciples in Acts did. Or maybe he, maybe he thought that he would have greater eternal rewards by doing that. We do know in Hebrews 11.35 that it says, Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. There does seem to be a better resurrection or greater rewards for those who are willing to endure suffering for Christ. We, in the book of Revelation chapter 6, we read about the martyrs under the throne. And there's a, a certain definite number that must be slain before Christ returns. And these have a reward for their suffering. But what I suspect was Paul's greatest motivation was not those things. I think he wanted the sweetness of fellowship with Christ and he knew he would have it when he went through those sufferings with the Lord. And, and notice, he speaks of the fellowship of his sufferings. The Christian may suffer for Christ, but he doesn't suffer by himself. He has fellowship with the Lord in his sufferings. In other words, just like we've been saying earlier today, the Lord doesn't forsake us. He draws near to us when we go through those sufferings and we have his presence with us. Do you remember the three Hebrew children who were thrown into the fiery furnace? And then there was another one there, one like the Son of God was walking in the furnace with them. That's a picture for us when we're going through the fires. Jesus is there with us, walking with us in the fire. In fact, 1 Peter 4.14 says, 
If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So folks, if we are being reviled for Christ, the Bible says the spirit of, of glory and of God is resting on us. There's a certain glory that attends being persecuted for the Lord. Someone has said there are many who want to wear the crown of glory but don't want to wear the crown of thorns. They want the throne, but they don't want the cross. And if we are disciples of Jesus, we've got to make it to heaven the same way he did. Through the cross, to the throne, to the, to the crown of glory. And then he mentions verse 10, being conformed to his death. The fellowship of his sufferings consists of being conformed to Jesus' death. Paul's goal was that he would live the same kind of life that Jesus lived. Well, how did Jesus live? Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was putting to death his own desires in order to do the Father's will. And I believe that's what Paul means here by being conformed to Christ's death. Jesus was willing to go to the cross, although in his human nature, he had no desire to go to that cross and suffer the wrath of God being poured out upon him. But he was willing to do that. He was willing to put to death his own human desires that were in conflict with God's desires. Think of the Christian woman who falls in love with a young man, but this man doesn't share her faith. She's a believer and he's not. Well, if she is going to be conformed to Christ's death, it's going to mean that she's going to have to leave that relationship because it's in conflict with God's will for her. The Bible's very clear that she is not to marry an unbeliever. So that's, that's a certain kind of death, isn't it? It's a, it's, it's a death to our own desires. It's denying of self, of what we would rather do if we had our own preferences. The Christian is one who can't just choose his own way in life and make his own choices. His choices are, are given to him by God and his word. Or think of the Christian man, perhaps, who is a salesman for a large corporation. And he, he, get, he lands this job and he's really happy. It's going to provide all of his needs for his family. But he finds out if he's going to be a salesman for this corporation, it's going to mean that he's going to have to lie, bend the truth, deceive people willingly. So he's got a choice to make. Either he does that and sin against God, or he walks away from this lucrative job and trusts the Lord somehow to provide for his needs. If he's going to be conformed to Christ's death, he's going to have to walk away from this, thing, this job that's causing him to lie and, and do things that are sinful in the sight of God. Or think of the, the Christian teenager who is in a new school. He wants to be well thought of. He wants to be popular. But he knows if he's going to be popular on campus, he's going to have to fit in with the rest of the crowd. And that means drinking, taking drugs, sleeping around with girls. And he loves the Lord. He's got a decision to make. His will, well, God's will, is in violation of what he might be tempted to do. And he's going to have to crucify his own desires. 
So the fellowship of Christ's sufferings includes being conformed to Christ's death, which means nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. So when God's will violates our will, we have to be conformed to Christ's death. We've got to put to death those, those desires that are at variance to God's will. And in this, Paul is describing for us the doctrine of sanctification. Have you noticed the doctrines that he's bringing up without mentioning them? The first one was regeneration, where we see the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That's the new birth. The second one was justification. We don't have a righteousness of our own derived from the law, but now we have a righteousness from God that comes to us on the basis of faith. That's a doctrine of justification. We're counted righteous. And here we have the doctrine of sanctification. We are putting to death those desires that conflict with God's will for our lives. Well, that brings us to the fifth aspect of knowing Christ that I wanted you to see, and that's knowing Christ is progressive. Because he says in verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, what's he talking about? He's saying, I know Christ, but knowing Christ is a path. And that path is going to take me ultimately through the new birth, through my justification, through my sanctification, and ultimately to my glorification, where my body now is raised up from the dead, and I spend eternity now with Jesus in his presence. So that's where knowing Christ will eventually lead all of us. It's going to lead to the resurrection from the dead. And I believe he had in mind scriptures like Romans 8.18, where Paul himself wrote, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's the resurrection from the dead. The glory that is to be revealed to us. Or 2 Timothy 2.11 and 12. If we died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The resurrection from the dead. Jesus spoke about it in John 6.40. Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. The resurrection from the dead. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew 25, 34. Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So when Paul talks about the resurrection from the dead, he's talking about inheriting God's kingdom, which has been prepared for us from the foundation of the world. Or it's what Jesus mentioned in John, or Matthew 13, 43. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So these are different ways of expressing this idea of our glorification. So knowing Christ is progressive. It leads you from step to step to step all the way to, and to the point that we're raised from the dead. And I can look back over 42 years as a Christian and knowing Christ has done all of that. It led from the new birth. It led to me knowing that I was justified by grace through faith. It's led to a process of sanctification where the Lord is dealing with me and I'm having to repent of any desires that are against the will of God and put those aside. And it ultimately will lead one day to where I stand in his very presence with a new body, entering into his kingdom forever to worship him and love him and fellowship with all my brothers and sisters. 
and all the saints who have ever lived. So it's, it's a wonderful progressive thing. So let's draw all of this down and let me just ask you a bunch of questions to try to help you apply what we've read. So is knowing Christ precious to you? We've already spoken about this, but I think it bears repeating. Does the way you live demonstrate that Jesus is precious to you? What that will mean is that the way you spend your time and energy will reflect the fact that knowing him is precious to you. Do you spend time with Jesus regularly? If knowing Christ is precious to you, that's something that you'll do. If, if a man's marriage is precious to him, then he will make it a priority to spend time with his wife. Because it's precious, it's valuable to him. He wants that relationship to flourish. It's the same way in our relationship with the Lord. Are you spending time in worship with the Lord? In prayer to the Lord? Are you sitting at his feet with his word open before you, listening to him speak to you through the word of God? If we're not doing those things, then it must mean that our relationship to Christ is not very precious to us. Other things are more pre precious to us than that. And so I think the Lord would want us to, if there's anything wrong in our lives, to do an adjustment today and rearrange our priorities and make him number one. Another question, are you experiencing the power of his resurrection in your life? I hope you are. I hope you can look at times of your life and you can see that was the Lord. That wasn't me. The, the ability not to respond in an angry way when I received verbal abuse from this person, that was God. That was the power of Christ's resurrection working in me. Or when I was able to forgive that person when they didn't even ask for it, that's the power of his resurrection working in me. When I was able to not give in to that temptation and, and walk before the Lord uprightly, that was the power of Christ's resurrection working in me. When I was able to, to speak the gospel boldly to that person, even though I knew it was going to be kind of awkward and I didn't know how they would respond, that's the power of Christ's resurrection. So we ought to be able to look at our lives and see the Lord is showing up. If he's not showing up in our lives, boy, something's really wrong, right? We, we ought to, we, the Christian is a supernatural person because he depends upon a supernatural God who lives in him to live his life through him. So... May God help us to experience the power of his resurrection in our lives more and more. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have daily experiences of where we said, yeah, that was Jesus, right there. That was his power working in me, right there. Another question for you this morning. Are you being conformed to Christ's death? When the Lord shows you that your will is contrary to his, do you say, not my will? but yours be done? Or do you say, not your will, but mine be done? Which is it more often? Are you forsaking the things that the Lord has made clear are sinful? And is doing God's will your highest goal? Remember Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this, this, or this? And I'll say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Uh, you did not... Actually, I missed the first verse, the 21. <laughs> Matthew 7, 21.
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who will then? But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So we have opportunities every day to crucify our human desires and replace those with God's desires. That's what sanctification is really all about. Choosing God's will over something else. Oh, may, may God just help us to be conformed to Christ's death, to experience the power of his resurrection in us, and to value more and more this relationship that God has given us with his son. I pray, Lord, that that would be the case, that you would be at work in our hearts today. Reveal to us, Lord, those things that are not your will for our lives and give us grace that we would turn away from those and em embrace you again and again and again, over and over. We know it won't, we'll never quit, Lord, until we meet you face to face. And we pray that your spirit would just continue to do that work. In Jesus' name, amen.